Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. There are over 110 awesome interviews in this podcast series. I invite you to scroll through my past episodes on any podcast app to listen to them all. Today's show features Radha B., whose battle with the diseases of alcoholism and drug addiction was complicated by an eating disorder and clinical depression. Growing up in Great Britain, her East African-Asian roots uncomfortably stood out among the mostly white children with whom she grew up. Using food and later alcohol, Rada blunted the ever-present feelings of fear, isolation, and self-loathing. Those feelings and her desperate desire to fit in drove her intense participation in athletics and school. Unfortunately, popularity for her achievements did little to mitigate feelings of emotional isolation from others. Escalating abuse of food, alcohol, and drugs emerged as major mental health disorders, controlling much of Rada's daily life. While years of therapy were increasingly focused on her eating disorders, including anorexia and bulimia, her alcoholism was left largely unaddressed. Rada was still functional in her career, despite her drinking, but her job performance inevitably began to decline as her alcoholic behavior carried over into her work. By the time she realized what a sick alcoholic she was, Rada was already in an extensive therapeutic program for her other mental health issues. Confronted by her one and only true friend, Rada was finally convinced that no amount of therapy was going to sufficiently help her out of her alcoholic malaise. Fortunately, by a series of higher-powered coincidences, Rada landed in a London meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. In the past eight and a half years, Rada has immersed herself in the program, beginning with the good orderly directions she received from her sponsor and her earnest service work on the 12 Steps. She sponsors other women and has gratefully accepted various AA service commitments. In addition to regular attendance at AA meetings, Rada has availed herself of other 12-step programs to deal with her co-occurring addictions. All in all, it's a formula for recovery that works well for Rada and greatly inspires others. Moving to New York about a month before our interview, Rada dove right into AA in the Big Apple, finding vital meetings and meaningful fellowship. It's yet another important demonstration of the amazing portability of the program. So I invite you to enjoy the next hour of AA Recovery Interviews with my new friend and AA sister, Radha B. Hello, my name is Radha and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Radha. Hi. Thanks so much for being on the AA Recovery Interviews podcast. I appreciate it. And uh, you're coming to us from New York City? I am. I am. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, you've got a funny accent for New York City. I, I do have a funny <laughs> accent for New York City. I am new to the city. I moved here a month ago. Did you really? London. Yeah. Wow. So what's it like? Are you in Manhattan or are you living elsewhere? Uh, no, I am in Manhattan. I spent a lot of time here over the past few years anyway, well, past five years, not including COVID. So it's uh -huh. not a huge shock to the system per se. Um, I think the longer I stay here, the more nuances I will find. But the big things like the size of the rats are bigger here. <laughs> the, the amount of trash on the sidewalk is more extensive. And it also made me realize how much green space I had accessible to me in London that I don't hear. Yeah, you've got the one big central park, right? but you have to go out into the suburbs to get anything else. Right. Yeah. I, I love New York City. I, I wish Just, I wish you well in that move. Thank this you. is a total relocation for you? Yeah. It's the first time I've not lived in the UK. So what has that done to your spiritual and the serenity lives, having to move like that? Without me even knowing it, it has forced me to plug in with greater ferocity and that sort of came in the process of the move uh -huh. and um, now that I have moved but if I really think about it when we started at work talking about this move happening a few years ago we thought it'd be quite quick and it really wasn't and actually the biggest thing I was able to do was hand that over you know it ended up taking two years for my visa to come through and after three months I had to say you know what 
I can't keep making half decisions about my UK life because I think I might be moving. So I just need to hand it over and live each day. And that is only possible when you have a program and a blueprint for life. And that's what I get. Yeah, that sounds like something that a recovering alcoholic and Alcoholics Anonymous might say. Uh, So you are that. How long have you been uh, in AA and what is your sobriety date? Sure. My, so my sobriety date is the 20th of July, 2014, um, and therefore I'm eight and a half years sober. Well, congratulations on that. Thank was you. that sobriety date in 2014, was that your first sobriety date, or had you made other ch- attempts to uh, get into AA or stop drinking in the past? So it's a really interesting question. I had had significant time dry, not sober, mm-hmm. um, almost the best part of the preceding decade mm. had been spent with me not drinking. Um, there were periods of drinking within that time, but I didn't know I was an alcoholic. I just knew that alcohol wasn't helping me mm. and I was going to lose my best friend. And so I said, I will stop drinking and let's just see if we can keep hold of our apartment together for one more year. And I stopped drinking, but I didn't stop, inverted commas, using, and, and I used um, on my primary, which is um, an eating disorder uh-huh. um, mainly, but I also used in other areas. But I, I did drink in those 10 years, but I had no idea I was an alcoholic until towards the latter end of that decade, the snowball had collected quite a lot of speed the disease had been doing those push-ups they talk about in the book uh-huh. and um, it was coming out. I'm, I'm mixing all of my metaphors, but it was coming out of the corner and I was leading with my chin and it was not a pleasant ending. Yeah, I'll bet not. And especially when you've been dry or as a friend of mine puts it, so dryety. Uh, <laughs> nice. He was dry for nine years and then he came into AA and he said it was a little bit awkward in the beginning because here he hadn't had a drink in all those years, but he was still coming in as a newcomer to sobriety. I mean, Mm -hmm. what we have, the sobriety that goes beyond just not drinking. And I wondered how how that felt to you coming into AA after having been dry, I'm assuming on self-will and willpower yourself over that 10-year period. Self-will run riot to the greatest extent. And, and, And I've never been more insane than I was with untreated alcohol, treating it neither with a program, fellowship or a drink. But I I did drink in that time and and each time there was a drinking moment. So the first time was probably three or four years in and it it truly was an evening, a few glasses of wine with dinner and then it was a few years later and then it was fewer years later Mm -hmm. and then it was just a year later and it was for longer and it was darker, faster and the last period was eight months of daily drinking. So I actually came in on the back of an eight month bender. Okay, so you weren't you weren't sober continuously during no. that time. You were experiencing what a lot of people do when they try to quit on their own. I know I did. Every time I quit, I knew I was gonna start again. It, it was just a question of when. It sounds to me with the, the periods of time getting shorter and shorter that I guess by the time you came into AA, you were ready. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, I think it's a really fair statement. And, you know, we we're able to talk about all of this with the beauty of hindsight and this new language and vocabulary we're given to to contextualise everything. I, I could absolutely have been a candidate from my first drink, as well as the day that I said, okay, I'm going to stop, let's save this friendship, as well as the day I came in and then the day I actually stopped. Yeah. So what you did actually is not that unusual in AA where you stopped to save a relationship. And I know that was my reason for stopping. My wife had, even though we'd only been married for a year and a half, my wife had had enough. And lots of people do it. It it doesn't make any difference how we get here as long as we're here, but relationships and healing them is a big part. So tell me a little bit about what led up to your your drinking and and drug use. Uh, What was your family of origin like with regard to alcohol and alcoholism in, in the family? So just very relaxed, to be perfectly honest, which is, I'll give you a bit of context. So my both okay. of my parents are in some way, shape or form refugees. So my mother was born in Uganda and, and ultimately in 1972, thrown out by uh-huh. Idli Amin and, and had, a, had always has only had a British protectorate passport. And so along with a whole swathe of others, 
came over to the UK. My father was born the year before uh-huh. partition, so the year before Indian independence. And he was born in Karachi, which obviously at the time was India, but became Pakistan. And, and he was born the year yeah. before then. And, and his family were refugees fleeing into India for their own safety. Hmm. My wow. father followed my mother around the world until she relented and her family <laughs> let him marry him. But so they, they came to the UK with nothing because everything had been taken from them. They ended up settling in a part of the UK that really wasn't where the rest of the, the East African Asians ended up. Yes. We ended up in the white, pretty much the whitest part of the UK in, in Cambridgeshire. Mm-hmm. And so my growing up, I was the only sort of brown person around. I was the largest person around, really. Was, uh, my eating disorder was very much in play. Mm-hmm. And I was probably, the, I was quite clever, quite frankly, and very, very sporty. And so alcohol at home was quite a relaxed thing. Mm-hmm. My parents didn't drink very often. It, it wasn't around loads, but when they did, it was fine. And as I grew up, they were very happy and comfortable with me having a drink when there were family things happening, even though my cousins might not. Mm-hmm. What they didn't know what was is what was going on underneath that with the volume of drinking I was actually doing um, for a large part of that time. Mm. So, so you did drink during that time, but the amount and the frequency wasn't known to other members of the family. No, correct. And, and, and then I, I ended up, so I, I was uh, a fairly accomplished sports person, not by virtue of um, natural talent, but truly by virtue of absolute graft mm. and understand, an intellectual understanding of it and the need mm-hmm. for this role on teams, which put a number on my back and told me what I had to do and made me part of something that and gave me a role. And so I played a lot of different sports at a decent level. And one day um, I'd been out the night before with the hockey team that I played for. So this is field hockey. And mm-hmm. I was quite young and it was an adult team I played for. And I blackout drunk, woke up the next day and had a soccer match to play. And I played appallingly and I got ripped to pieces by the manager mm. and my, uh, what I like to call character defense of my ego and pride came shining through and said, right, you can't drink before you play now. And so I just didn't drink before I played matches. And because I am obsessive about these mm. things, I was playing a lot of matches. So that really curbed my drinking up until college, university. Uh, I see. So how old were you when, when that first drink and blackout occurred? Oh, gosh. I think my first drink and blackout was I was probably 11 or 12. That particular incident happened when I was 14, I think. But I was a blackout drinker from day one. Tell me how you felt when you when you got drunk for the first several times or the thing that made you chase that feeling again in future. So I, I think it switched. I think it started as there was just the inner warmth that that had never existed. Just this mm-hmm. inner heat and peace that I had never experienced. But I also hadn't really experienced any feelings at all I Mm. was pretty much dead from the neck down I lived in my head was numb Mm. a lot of the time wasn't experiencing any emotions because the way that my family existed all I had was an emotionally volatile father so I didn't we were all on eggshells around either he's very low or he's top of the world Mm -hmm. and we just don't we just want to keep it stable and then an emotionally absent mother so I, I just didn't experience any, I, I felt numb a lot of the time. So I think yeah. what it did was it gave me feelings. So that must have been a, quite a relief to you that, to start that at 14 with everything that you had missed along the way in terms of emotional support and the kind of things that happen in non-dysfunctional families. I don't even call them functional families anymore. Non-dysfunctional right. or less, less than dysfunctional, whatever the term might be. <laughs> Because I had the same kind of thing. I mean, my my dad was a rageaholic. My neither of my parents drank, but my dad was a rageaholic. My mom was completely emotionally devoid. It it was a really tough household to grow up in. So drugs and alcohol became a perfect way to artificially create what I had been missing all along. Did you find that to be the case? So I think I found that I I didn't ever want to rock the boat. And so I shut everything off and just focused on putting on the right show 
like being top of the class on all of the teams, super successful, no trouble whatsoever, whilst my peers were all getting into mm -hmm. trouble. But I, there, there was also that part of me that had the just the darkest, saddest, lowest thoughts around, you know, I, d I don't believe it's now normal for uh, someone before they're 12, 13 to be thinking about killing themselves and having and, and wondering wondering about their place in the world and whether they should be there. So actually there was just drinking, smoking, drugs, overeating, starvation, any of that self-harm, any of that stuff mm -hmm. was all about having something that was just for me that I could choose and it wasn't about anyone else. And I think mm. whereas everything, I think everything, the rest of my life was about living it for other people. The, the sad part of everything you just said is that reaching out for help in the midst of that going on is very difficult to do, especially when you've got parents who aren't that well attuned to how you're feeling or, you know, whether they even care or not. It's difficult. You've got no one to tell. Did, when you had those thoughts of suicide, uh, I've had other guests on the show who had thoughts early on like that, too. And some of them got professional help. Some of them uh, just you know, how to live through it. What was your experience? I didn't, I thought I was a burden. That that deep self-loathing mm -hmm. of, of not being worthy, of being too much and not enough, all of those feelings that I now have a narrative for, I didn't want to put that on them because my, my, my parents adore me to their very core. They would move heaven and earth for me. They have moved heaven and earth for me. But I didn't ever want to put this on them partly because I didn't understand it and know it. I thought I might be making it up. I didn't know if it was real. So I had all of this stuff going on. But also I, I, I was ashamed of all of it and I didn't know I wanted everything to be fine because mm -hmm. it felt safe. Yeah, and that's, that's tough to feel that way when everything you're doing to get out of those feelings is also taking you down another road. I'm talking about the alcohol and the drugs now because we, we do pay a price for being able to be let out of the cage. But, you know, that doesn't mean we still don't have a leash on. Uh, and alcohol, for me, was that leash. Uh, I was able to numb the feelings, but when I wasn't doing that, the same feelings were still there. It was kind of tough. So you got through that period and you started drinking at 14. You were very active in sports. You were good in school. Did you have very many friends or any friends during that period of time? I was broadly loved by everyone, but no one knew me. Like I wasn't, I didn't have the friend. I wasn't part of any one group. I would just not get close to anyone and flip between everyone. I never understood how the girls could go home from school and then call each other up in the evening and talk mm -hmm. all night. I didn't understand what you would talk about one person to another. That scared me. So actually I had, I spent all of my time playing sports, training, being with others. That's how I socialized. And therefore I was broadly, you know, kind of liked by everyone, teachers, people. I'm sure some of them thought I was just an annoying SWAT that was good at everything, you know, I guess the other part is that no one really knew mm -hmm. me, you know. My parents ran the local village store, and so we were a very visible family, both because we were the only brown people, but also we were physically visible mm -hmm. daily. So there was no space for me to get into trouble because it would go straight back to my parents because we lived in this small, these small cluster of villages. I was, I mean, I was desperately lonely desperately 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 lonely mm. all the time and, and as much as the sport helped uh, it, for me at, before the drinking was given the air that it needed it was definitely mm -hmm. food and over studying and, and over exercise but even then you know we, we had this store and I would go and see my father at sort of 6 30 and I would steal alcohol from our own shop mm -hmm. and I would walk back to our house a grand total of four minutes walk and in that time I will have completely downed a can of something so it was just always there bubbling under the surface hmm. so that was something that went on during your high school years yeah. so as you worked your way through high school very lonely being on sports teams working out excesses along the way these days we'd say were other addictions what was it like when you got out of high school? Did you go straight on to university? 
So the way that it works in the in the UK is that from the age of 16, my I left that school and went to what we call a sixth form college for two years. And that was uh, a little further away in Cambridge. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot more going out and socialising and drinking then. And, and every time there would be consequences, I behaved badly, there'd be house parties. I was always the one that would... I threw up a lot. I threw up a lot. I would be in compromising mm. positions. I would make a fool of myself. But then I went straight to, to college, to university after that, um, up to a university called Loughborough, which is uh, the, sort of the best sports university in the world in terms of sports science. It's the equivalent of NCAA champions in the UK and has been for 40 years, never been beaten. Mm. That's amazing. So you went, you went there and... Were you able to, in addition to the sports, did university give you any opportunities to start to develop a social life or to get through the loneliness? I It sort of did in that I was out all mm-hmm. the time and I was drinking all the time and I was fun all the time. Mm. I was in the centre of things. I was... You know, in our in our dorms, yeah. you know, they vote for their their queen of the hall, and that was me two years in the row. You know, I won <laughs> loads of elections. I was popular to that extent, but absolutely yeah. no one knew what I was feeling inside. I was everything was great and fine, huh. and I and, and my drinking and my eating disorder and smoking and drugs and bad behaviour really, really, really took off at that point. Have you ever stopped to think what it would have been like? during that time if, let's say, right when you went to university, where you were able to become known for what you were feeling inside. Have you ever thought about what your life would have been like had you that opportunity to to expose some of the things that you were uh, repressing or suppressing? Yeah, and and it's a great question. And the short answer is the, the few occasions that I did, I was absolutely hammered. Mm -hmm. And that truth comes out. And then the crippling shame the next day and the the apologies of taking someone hostage and telling them all of that and the flowers that I'd send, the letters of apology, don't worry about it, I was just drunk, you know, row back, row back, row back. Um, Yeah. Hmm. Uh, That's tough, especially if you are prone to blackouts because you have to have the people who you were doing that with fill you in on what you said and what you did. Right. And I, you know, I was able to laugh it off and try and piece together the night. Smartphones didn't exist at that point. You know, we're talking the old Nokias. Certain number of messages didn't keep your sent messages. So you only got the message back. And then I'd have to ask people to send me what I'd sent them. And what I understand now is I was looking to connect. I was looking for connection. I was was lonely. That's what I was trying to say. But I was saying it by sending garbled messages. And I don't... If I really think about it, I think I probably could have written a fairly comprehensive, clear message, but I didn't have the words, so I sent the garble because I knew I could get away with it. But I can look back now and know that that was a reach out. Yeah. And it's tough, too. I know when whenever I was drunk, the difficulty of knowing when to be honest and when not to be honest would get all jumbled up. And, you know, I'd go from bragging about having done something I never did to wanting to tell somebody about the abuse I suffered as a child. But they all got mixed together, and, and it, it confused friends. I, you know, one of my dates ended with, it was the first date, too, and one of them ended with the woman saying, I, how, I can't help you. And I remember that the next day, but I was so drunk that I must have been doing something that made her think I was asking her to help me, you know? Right. I completely identify with that, like the the undershare, overshare, the, the lies and the truth and, and not really knowing, not being able to say the thing I'm most ashamed about is this. It, for me, it's always been about body image and, and my size. And so, you know, I my parents always told me how much they loved me, how brilliant I was, how much I could do everything, but all of their behaviours about my body shape and size and my weight told me the opposite, that I was disgusting i was not good enough there was something wrong mm-hmm. with me and that that inner conflict was always there and and the expressions of it came out in in every type of using you can imagine and drinking was the one that took me so down so at that point with that all going on starting in the family and kind of branching out into the rest of your life into college and assuming you drank every chance you could 
Yeah, and, and those chances, the number of chances increased exponentially mm. after my freshman year because I got injured and... That, that thing of I won't drink before I play had stayed true all the way through. I went to Loughborough to study sports science and English and to play sport for Loughborough. I got injured in the summer of my freshman year and therefore literally the wheels came off. My entire identity was shot. I didn't know who I was. There was no mm. number on my back anymore. There was no name on the team sheet. In real terms, I didn't have a playbook. Uh, I now have a big book, which is wonderful, but I didn't have anything then. And I had no idea, you know, the depression that I now understand that I'd had for a very long time uh -huh. was yeah. rampant. The medication I was on post a significant amount of knee surgery, plus the drinking, plus the overeating and the self-loathing and the drugs. Absolutely. I would say I was running at it, but I couldn't even walk at that point. But I was hobbling at uh -huh. it um, with, with real gusto. So you were rushing down the path to destruction. Absolutely. All the time. You know, I, I remember in my first, even in my first year, though, it was quite bad. I remember making a decision one day that on a particular night out, I was going to see if I could go and not drink. Uh -huh. Why would you do that? Unless you thought that there was a reason to do it, why would you do yeah. it? You know, I came home and went to bed really quite early that <laughs> night, you know. Yeah. And, and the thing is, I don't, I don't like going out. I didn't like going out and socialising then. I just did, did it because... Everyone did, and you could get away with it at Loughborough because I didn't have to dress mm -hmm. up, and I was so conscious of just looking so ugly and, and being too big to wear anything fashionable. But you could get away with wearing... We were obsessed with... For every occasion, you'd have a different T-shirt, you know? you know. So I could... If I was out with a football team, I would wear my football stuff. If I was out with my hall, my dorm, yeah. we would wear that, you know? So... It, all of that was taken away from me. And so it just gave me the freedom to go out. But where I could, I would be drinking alone. That's a huge sense of loss, though. I mean, going from your entire identity being wrapped around being good at sports and everything to getting injured and no longer being able to engage in athletics, then the ready availability of drinking to deal with both ends of that. Right. Would I be correct in thinking that you would have drank either way? Yeah. Without question, I would have drunk either way. And I just think the the exacerbated feelings of... First of all, I, I was always bigger than anyone else anyway. So that's sort of not feeling part of. And then being on this sports science degree and looking the way that I did, and also probably being one of two or three people of colour on it as well, all of that just was the, this constant signal yeah. there's something wrong with you. So that's the, the loudest signal I have. Did that follow you throughout your university? Yes, it did. And, and it's um, and actually how I graduated as, as well as I did, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I, I also ran an election, an entire university-wide election um, to become uh, Athletic Union president. So it's the, the best student sport job that exists in mm -hmm. the UK and I uh, was a big smoking drinking failure of an athlete going up against Olympic hopefuls mm. and my ability to stand on a stage and tell a story and my obsession and my need to be successful with this allied with what I can now understand is an ability to bring people on a journey and, and, and help people believe in something and that I really wanted this role. And, and, and actually, I was elected in that mm. role. How I got it and how I made it through that election period, I don't know. But for me, that was me proving the point that I was fine, everything was okay, there wasn't a problem, look, look at what I've done. Sounds to me like you were able to get everything you needed from within your head, irrespective of what the rest of you was going through, whether it was being big or whether it was being injured. Uh, you still had an ability, I guess, a knack to gather people around you and make an impact on them. That's yeah. probably a gift that we don't realize until sometime in the future. You know, what, what a difference we might have made. Right. Luckily, it now is essentially the essence of what I do yeah. with my life. So uh, I'm, I'm lucky from that perspective. So walk us down the road, if you would, Radha, uh, on postgraduate and your drinking slash drug career mm. leading up to the point at which you first tried that dry period. So um, on 
finishing my sabbatical year, I left the university. I was morbidly obese at this point. Um, my health was absolutely at risk, smoking a lot and drinking. And I moved back home mm -hmm. for a little bit to my parents and, and started looking for jobs. And I, I had done a good job as president of the Athletic Union mm -hmm. and, and I was... Um, the equivalent of the NCAA in the UK, which was then called BUSA, um, they had called up and said, will you come and work for us for six months during the Athens Games? Because um, we're going to second our marketing and communications manager to the Olympic team mm. for that time. And will you come and cover her? And so I did, and, and I moved I moved to London without an interview, without anything else. I just got given this wonderful wow. job, and, and, and there started my career. And in that time with that organisation, um, there was a lot of drinking. It was a very intense, difficult... I ended up staying there for, uh, for mm -hmm. two years, actually, taking on a different role. We, we were young, you know, I was mm -hmm. in my early 20s, and we were running, each of us had 10 sports we were responsible for, from the lowest level all the way through to the mm -hmm. international team, um, student international team. We were driving around the country, running events, you know, managing programs, developing the sport, learning how to be in the workforce. And every night, you know, we'd be working late, starting early, and every night we'd go and drink, you know, mm -hmm. and everyone else would then go home and I would then go home and keep drinking and then pass out and then mm. come back again. In that time, one really significant thing happened. A friend who I'd been at Sixth Form College with, so that sort of 16 to 18 year old piece, was moving to London and we said, OK, well, why don't we get a place together. We'd sure. been friends, but we'd never been really close. We both had this thing where we really admired each other. What we've learned since is that we admired uh -huh. each other from afar and assumed the other person was too cool <laughs> for the other one. That's, That's what we so now bad. know. <laughs> right. But as it turns out, we got this apartment together and I finally let a friend hmm. in. Someone saw me every single day. There was nowhere for me to hide. And this person... She got through a chink in the armour and she saw the sadness and the loneliness and the depression and she said, we need to get you some help. And in that time, that help looked like going to start therapy for the first mm -hmm. time and the wheels came mm. off. I had no narrative and no no words for for an emotional language, but I had a whole head of stuff to talk to this therapist about. And it's you know like a pair of shoes; it takes a few tries to find the right one. And my drinking got significantly worse at that point, particularly. Mm. Um, so this is two thousand and four ish time, two thousand and five. Um, my friend M and I drank pretty much the same way. Mm -hmm. She's not an alcoholic. She didn't drink for the reasons I drank and she doesn't have an allergy or an obsession. Mm. And my behaviour and the risks I took and the risks I put both of us in um, got worse and worse and worse. The consequences were worse. She didn't know if she was going to come back to me covered in blood because I had self-harm. She didn't know if I was going to come back alive or dead. She didn't know which man might be in the house mm. and... She'd always made me promise never to bring drugs into the house, and I did. Mm -hmm. um, and that is when the ultimatum sort of came, which was, I love you, but I am too scared to be around you. I don't think I am helping you. We cannot take on the second year of our contract together. Mm -hmm. And for the first time, I'd let someone in. And I'd even said to her at the beginning of the friendship, you shouldn't get too close to me because I'll hurt mm -hmm. you, you know? And I made that happen. Yeah. What I understand now is that that isn't my actual truth at my core to hurt others but that was all I could do then because I didn't know how else to behave in close proximity with another human yeah. there's, there was always a force field I could keep apart but um, this miraculous woman knocked through it. Oh that's amazing knowing what you know now would you say that her appearance in your life was a godsend? Without a doubt and, and the way that her appearance in my life from then to this day at every point has been a really important part of me becoming an emotionally sober person to be of service in this world. Mm. There are many points at yeah. which she, she has been the symbol. We'll be right back. 
My friends, if you've enjoyed my AA Recovery interview series and my Big Book podcast, check out Lost Stories of the Big Book, 30 original stories from the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous, missing from the third and fourth editions. It's an engaging audiobook that I narrated to bring these stories to life for AA members who've never seen them. These timeless testimonials were originally cut to make room for newer stories in the third and fourth editions. But their vitally important messages of hope are as meaningful today as when they were first published. Many listeners will hear these stories for the first time. Lost Stories of the Big Book is available on Audible, Amazon, and iTunes. It's also available as a Kindle book and in paperback from Amazon if you'd like to read along with the audio. You're going to love it. And we're back. You mentioned earlier, Radha, about depression. Um, I've suffered from clinical depression for probably my entire life, but didn't really get help for it until I'd already been sober two or three years. And I was sober and life was still sucking and uh, I was doing pretty well at my work and life still sucked. And I finally went to a, a doctor, a psychiatrist to diagnose clinical depression. And I've been treating it since then with medication and, and talk, talk mm-hmm. therapy. Did you seek out any professional help like that? Yeah, so much. Starting with that particular friendship and the therapy that started there. Um, and from there to this day, I think the most time I've had without being in therapy is six months. Mm-hmm. I am medically treated for depression, anxiety, mm-hmm. um, ADHD and complex PTSD. And I abused those medications in the period of time where I was a, a dry drunk. Yeah. Whereas now I see them as a very fundamental part of my sobriety. I went into treatment when I was five years sober and I remain supported by professional help to this day. It's talk therapy, but it's also somatic work for me. Talking can't do it all. I, I have to feel this and I've had to learn how to feel this. But I mean, just to, to, I suppose, put it into context um, without dwelling on that time where I wasn't drinking, but it wasn't sober. Mm-hmm. The consequences of my extreme starvation, extreme overtraining were that I would black out, break arms, distance myself from people, be very difficult to be around because I was so, so, so scared of anything going out of control I got smaller and smaller and smaller and I thought I had found it's like having that first drink when you think you found the answer that warmth Mm -hmm. I thought I found the answer because I was finally thin and faster and and stronger and had more endurance than and than anyone honestly I was it was using in its greatest sense it's a really painful painful place to be and I equate it to the pain of act, of the daily drinking mm-hmm. when you've given up even pretending to try to not have a drink that day when it's game set and match and you know it's going to happen mm-hmm. and so uh, the reason I share that is because the extent of my eating disorder almost lost me my sobriety in the program and that's why I ended up in treatment so it will all come full circle um, in due course. I get that and my experience has been amongst the people who I've known and sponsored and over the years that I've been sober and, and in my own life that certain addictions get replaced with other addictions. I think it's like our egos and our psyches are trying to create some sort of equilibrium. In the early days of, of going to see therapists, did any of them ask you about your drinking? What were you telling them about the consequences of your life as pertains to drinking or drug use? Did they ever ask you about it? Not much. And and that's partly because a large, a large amount of that time, I was a dry drunk. I'd, I'd asked for some help around my food. At that point, I spoke to the incredible doctor that I was lucky enough to have in the UK. And, and she referred me to a, um, to a specialist unit. I was assessed there. I was deemed eligible, but not at, not serious. So I was on a waiting list for a long time. So I was in uh, 31 weeks of CAT treatment, so cognitive analytical therapy. Mm-hmm. And I continued to see that therapist when I came out of that time. I was still in my eating disorder. But that's really towards the end of that period of being a dry drunk where I was just drinking. I was effectively in a constant suite of relapse. Mm. And at that point, there were a lot of conversations about my drinking. And my doctor 
also um, connected me into the a psychiatrist from the mental health team with a focus on on substance and addiction, and she organised a call between my therapist this psychiatrist and herself to make sure they were all saying the same thing to me. And, and that's really where the seed of AA was sown. That kind of coordinated care is so rare. And especially, I don't know what it, what it's like in the UK health system, but here there's so many disparate approaches to the same problems that finding any kind of coordination of the care, be it medications, be it the type of therapy, is is very difficult. So if you found yourself with a team like that, that that's a huge blessing. And, and I unequivocally consider that a higher power universe protecting me. That is not the normal experience in the UK. Uh-huh. It's not normal to be able to see the same doctor. She saw something in me and cared. And and to this day, I, I left the UK in January and my last appointment with her we both had a big cry, actually, you know, and um, I understand how rare that is. And I am grateful for that because it's kept me alive. It's such a nice expression of the work that you've done in staying sober. I mean, to have that kind of relationship and be able to have the handoff. Now you're in New York City. You're going to have to find some new folks. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> yeah. So during that period, I don't know how big it is in, in, in Great Britain, but um, Overeaters Anonymous, I, I have a very, very close friend who's been sober about a little less than I have. And uh, for years, he was huge. He was very strong in AA. And then he got involved in OA. And he dropped down, and it took years to do it, but he dropped down to a, a place where his OA program became as strong as his AA program. And between the two, he really carved out a really neat life for himself. He's also uh, an inspiring person to many people. But was OA or any other 12-step type programs ever presented to you during that time? I had looked at OA and I had never gone. Um, This was pre-recovery. I actually am now a member of ABA, which is Anorexics and Bulimics Anonymous. Um, I don't identify very much in OA, as it turns out. It's not how um, my disease comes through. And and actually, on on a bedrock of sobriety in AA, I was able to start exploring ABA Mm -hmm. through the suggestion of a therapist. And, um, And had I not done that, I would not have got to the point where I finally did the biggest thing post getting sober, which was going into treatment. During this period of time, you get through this dry period. You mentioned earlier on in the uh, in our talk about drinking occasionally during that time. Did you continue to live with your roommate or did you guys split? No. After that second year, that first the first year of my dry drunkenness, it was the end of our contract. She moved in with her mm-hmm. then boyfriend who became her first husband. And I moved to another part of London and was living alone. And I was able to do all of that alone. What kind of signs were there along the way in that 10-year period that might have started you up in AA sooner than you got actually got there? I think it was in 2010 when one of my uncles passed away. In our culture, there are 12 nights of mourning that we do. Mm -hmm. So my mother is one of um, 10, and this particular uncle is her favourite brother. She sees him as having saved us as a family. He did really help Mm -hmm. us. He's the one that taught me how to ride a bike. You know, the rest of our family were dotted around the world. A lot of them were in London. But he, the reason we were in Cambridgeshire was because he had settled there with his wife and his son. And so I spent a lot of time with them. We lived with them for a while. And when he died, I was going from London to Cambridgeshire every night for these 12 nights. As I was coming back on the train, back to London at night, something, uh, the idea of a drink seemed Mm. to make sense. That's when the sort of occasional drink became a week or two of drinking mm-hmm. and then a break for another year, then became a few months and then a break for less than a year, then became many more months, then a break for a month or two that became the final eight months. So I think it was sort of that point. I mean, I, I absolutely could have gone in in the early 2000s without question, but 
I think it was probably 2010 when I, I could, um, but my eating disorder was strong enough at that point to take over. So that's where I ended up leaning in. But the alcoholism is there and it's cunning, baffling and powerful, oh, yeah. right? So it swooped in and kicked the ED out the way a little bit for a while. I was going to ask you about that. Was not drinking during those dry years a form of self-harm? Yeah, alongside the actual self-harm, for sure. I thought it made me powerful. Really? Yeah, I thought it made me really powerful. Like, I can do all of this. I can, you know, train all of these hours, do this job, show up. Um, and I don't need to drink. I, I went to the majority of weddings that I've been to, and I've been to, uh -huh. let's say, 50. Uh, the majority of the weddings and the bachelorettes, what we would call Hendies, the majority of them I've done mm. sober. Well, that's a lie. I've done dry. Uh -huh. um, and so I, I was arrogant about it as well. So were you indignant about the people who were drinking, or did you place yourself on a pedestal above everybody because of your dryness? I think I was in the constant pendulum of greater than, less than at all times, mm -hmm. uh, as we often hear. And so I just got frustrated with people. The way I saw it, it was just a waste of calories at that point, you know, because I had this other stuff. Mm -hmm. And so I just thought I had this iron will that I'd been desperately looking for mm. my whole life. And what I didn't know was that it had been there my whole life, just showing itself in different ways. What was your spiritual life like during that 10-year period? Did you have any sense of higher power during that time? It's a great question. So I, I grew up in a fairly religious and spiritual household, mm -hmm. but done in a really beautiful way in that I, I was allowed to go to Sunday school as a kid. You know, it was somewhere for me to go mm -hmm. more than anything else. It wasn't our religion. My parents are Hindus and we would pray monthly. I would do it because I was a good girl. Mm -hmm. That was why. But there was always something in me that had a belief in something bigger than myself. And I think the thing that, that I will always think about from that perspective is the day that I got that first diagnosis about how bad that knee injury I had was and, and the implications of it and what it meant something in mm -hmm. me and I don't know what it was because I was up in a part of London, um, part of the UK where I where you, my university was next to a town called Leicestershire which is a huge Asian population something made me go to an Indian sweet shop buy a box of Indian sweet meats and go to the temple gift the sweets as you do and sit in that temple I had never voluntarily walked into a temple in my whole life mm. and something that day placed me in there and I don't know what it was and so I think that there was always this belief that there was there was, there was a universal power somewhere that was how it was expressed to me but that is not where it is now I think I've always had a faith in something mm -hmm. AA has given me a structure for that faith and the way to deploy it which has been much more value. Yeah, I get that. And it, it sounds a lot like what I hear and my own personal experience was, yeah, I prayed uh, when I was out there drinking and using. I just didn't think anything was going to come of it or that God really cared, you know. So I, I was I was led towards agnosticism. You know, I was I was led towards saying I believe, but deep down inside not knowing. Sounds like that one experience for you in that temple was a uh, kind of a spiritual spiritual light. I don't know why. Would you call it a spiritual experience? I, I think only in hindsight. I think at the time, I thought, oh, my God, you're a real mess if that's where you've ended up, <laughs> you know? Um, I think I can look back on it now and go, no, that was just you being protected in a way that you weren't able to do sure. yourself. Yeah, yeah, I get that. So take us up to the point at which you were through with the dry years and you finally go into AA in earnest. What were the, what were the first, uh, first few weeks and months like? So at this point, I'm, you know, I'm still working. I'm still in a, a fairly successful, um, but every night, a liter of gin, self-harm, wake up, straight into the gym, teaching fitness classes, putting a suit on, going to my proper job and rinse and repeat, drinking in the morning as well. How, how long did that go on? Eight months. Yeah. One Sunday morning I came to and I walked out of my apartment and went down to the bottom of a road in Chelsea in London called Flood Street. And I 
said to myself, right, you need to go to a cafe. You can eat whatever you like. Don't worry about that. Have some coffee. You have to get some work done today. So sober up, get some work done, and then you can drink again. And I just couldn't decide which cafe to go into. And something in my mind made me Google AA. That earworm had been put there by that sort of team. And so I Googled AA and meetings. And there was a meeting starting in two minutes, 20 yards from where I was standing. This hall that I had walked past every day for six years. This hall every Sunday where I'd see this group of people standing outside smoking and drinking out of polystyrene cups, looking really happy. And the hall's called the Hall of Remembrance. And I remember going past thinking, I wonder who they're memorialising this week, you know? And anyway, I, I walked into this meeting. It's one of the biggest ones in London. I don't know, 100, 150, 200 people there. And I sat down and I sobbed. Mm. And I was sweaty and I was uncomfortable and... The man at the front of the room telling his story couldn't have been more different to me. So he was white, I am not. He was a man, I am not. He was gay, I am not. He was upper class, double barreled. I am a working class, second generation immigrant. And he talked about sporting success, academic success, work success, eating disorder, self-harm. When he had a drink, he didn't know when to stop and he didn't know if he ever would Mm. again. And then he said he was seven years sober. And that man is a friend to this Mm. day. My my first service commitment as someone taking a meeting, he was my first speaker. That was my first meeting. Mm -hmm. And at the end of that meeting, um, pre-COVID, what would happen is everyone would stand around the outside of the room and they would celebrate sobriety birthdays. And obviously everyone gets up at the end of the meeting. I didn't know what the mm-hmm. hell was going on. And this, and I said to this woman, oh, I'm, I don't, I'm, this is my first meeting. I don't know what's happening. And so she took me to the side of the room. They do the countdown and it got to 24 hours and she took my hand and she put my hand in the air. And I, I was, got this big round of applause and then I got swooped up by this group of women and they took me to a cafe and they talked at me for hours and I had all of those feelings of, well, you know, I have done this, I've been dry. Um, oh my, and in my head, I was like, this is a cult, what's the God thing? All of those normal things, oh my, like you go all the time, what are you talking about? I knew I was gonna drink uh-huh. that night um, and I did. And for the following two weeks, started going to a few meetings, people were starting to message, but I was still drinking. Mm allied to the pain of being truly in my insanity and my eating disorder and being an untreated alcoholic Mm -hmm. was the pain of not drinking and having a little bit of (laughs) AA knowledge. My goodness, that is a heady mix. So it's true what they say, a head full of AA and a belly full of beer just doesn't work very well, does it? It's no, it doesn't. And, And therefore, two weeks after my first meeting was my first sobriety day, 20th of July, 2014, but was that Sunday meeting again. That's amazing. That, you know, that story you just told is so classic. I just, I can visualize it because I go to a a Zoom meeting for the last Mm. three years there in London. So they always talk about that particular meeting. And so I feel like I know it, how wonderful it must be. And to hear you have that experience of being 20 yards away from a meeting and having somebody who puts your hand up and them swooping you up and taking you out to, you know, for tea. That's, that's just a wonderful story. That's one of those that if we could give that exact response to every newcomer who came, it sounds like you hit AA on a really great day. Yeah. Oh, well, my higher power put me there for sure. So once you started getting involved, uh, did you get a sponsor right away? What was all that like? No, I, I didn't. I, I did what I'm now, um, I've now learnt as the AA waltz, the old step one, two, three a few sure. times with a few different people. And not because I was, didn't want to do step four because I was scared of it, but because I was so excessively arrogant about the volume of therapy yeah. I'd done. And as such, I was just like, look, I've dealt with all of this. I don't need to do it. I also chose sponsors that fundamentally I knew I could manipulate. And actually, it took me until I was just under a year sober to ask someone to sponsor me. And 
that person was the one that took me through the 12 steps. And in that time, uh, and, and it took me up until I was three years sober to complete the 12 steps. That's wonderful. That's not dissimilar to my experience early on, where I somehow conflated meetings and AA with therapy. And so what I would say is the day I go to my group therapy, I don't need to go to a meeting because I've been to group therapy. The day I go to see my psychologist, I don't have to go to an AA meeting because I've seen my psychologist. And for whatever reason, it took, it took a while before I realized, and it was pointed out to me at some point along the way, maybe by one of the therapists who's actually in the program at the time, he said, AA and therapy are not the same thing. And as a therapist, he would go to AA meetings so it sounds to me like once you got past thinking that therapy was enough to handle the things that you can only handle in AA, it must have been a real big turning point, huh? Huge, huge, huge. But also understanding the difference between the two and where I needed one and not yeah. the other. Um, and, and I guess, you know, for me, that takes us to, uh, I'm four and a half years sober uh -huh. and it's a Saturday night and my eating disorder is raging and I... Put, have my hand on a bottle of gin mm. you know I was ready to throw it all away I knew that I could I could throw I could crash the whole house of cards with a drink yeah. and then I wouldn't have to deal with the other stuff but the beauty of taking suggestions is that I'd been to thousands of meetings by this point and in my head what I knew was I was going to my normal 9am Sunday meeting the following day and I would have to say, my name is Radha, I'm an alcoholic and I'm one day back. And once again, those character defences came out in force and that ego came out and I was like, I can't yeah. do it. I can't do it. By this point, I'm right in the centre of Chelsea AA. I'm really well known in it. I'm sponsoring. I am showing up. I'm doing service. Um, I'm doing all of that stuff. It's absolutely given me a life. I'm, I have my dream job. I'm travelling the world mm -hmm. uh, and getting paid for it. You know, I'm, I've moved to a nicer place. All of that good stuff is happening. And I know, for those people that can can come back and say my name is x and i'm one day back whether they do it once or 101 times i think they are absolutely remarkable yeah. i truly believe they are and so that moment that day where i didn't pick up that mm -hmm. drink led to sort of six months of really using the meetings to work through my feelings about knowing that in order for me to remain sober i needed to go away into treatment but the other thing it also taught me was that the reason that happened was because all of my therapy was starting to work. The therapy before just kept me alive, but I was using and drinking so much that it wasn't right. working really in terms of actually creating sustainable change in my beliefs and my behaviours and my understanding, my feelings, my ability to live life on life's mm -hmm. terms. It wasn't doing any of that. There was no resolution to the mm -hmm. trauma. But once I had a bedrock of sobriety, regardless of the fact that I would consider alcoholism not my number one, it's going to kill me nonetheless, and it has to be dealt with first. Mm -hmm. With that bedrock of sobriety, therapy started working. Of course, the wheels came off in every other area. Yeah. They had to. And so it was remarkable to be able to go into meetings and slowly but surely chip away and share and be heard and sometimes not say a word and just sit in meetings and shake and cry and be seen and loved mm -hmm. until I was ready to know. And this is really where the program came in, that I was able to go. I was at the peak of my career. I thought I was at the peak of uh -huh. my career at that point. And I, I just had to go in and, and say, I need to take three months sick mm -hmm. leave and be okay with the outcome of them saying no and knowing I would mm -hmm. resign. They did absolutely the opposite and they supported me wholeheartedly. Um, and I'm now co-managing director of that business. But I was then able to go into treatment. But he here's to your point around the conflation of the two. In treatment in the US for three months, eating disorder and trauma treatment. But that facility was a very small eating disorder unit within a big trauma and substance place. As a result of that, there are a lot of people in their early days and therefore there are, there are a lot of meetings in the evening. Every evening I was able to go to an AA meeting and talk about recovery when everyone else was talking about oh, the disease because yeah. I was the one that had some recovery. And what that did was obviously your job in treatment is to talk about right. yourself 
And if I spend too much time in that space, I'm not going to get well. <laughs> so the ability to spend my evenings being of service and be connected with peers allowed the treatment that I had there, particularly the somatic breathwork stuff, mm-hmm. the rest of it, to be successful. Mm. And, and I was able to do that because I had, by that point, five years of AA under my belt and all of this stuff that I had taken from people who had willingly given it to me, yeah. you know? And for me, I think that that was a higher power. All of those times in the past where I needed the help with my eating disorder and didn't take it and didn't Mm -hmm. find it, I had to wait until it was the right time. And I believe that was the right time, October to January 2019 to 2020. That's amazing. Good for you. That's I've known several people, close friends, who have done the exact same thing decades into sobriety and have gone off to deal with issues. So I'm real grateful to hear you talk about being there for other people while taking what you needed, the time you needed, and the space that you needed to to heal yourself. Thank you. You probably brought a much different person back to London with you when when that happened. Yeah, I really did. And and, and it's been a really beautiful journey from there Uh on in, you know, because I think what's happened as a result of that. A, I, I've had two new sponsors in that time, the last of which is um, uh, the person that suggested me to you, and she is absolutely, she's yeah. incredible. Over the past few years, what has happened is that I have come to really value how the programme and use of the programme shows up in my mm-hmm. life because it comes with the package of the fellowship mm-hmm. that has taught me how to use it I, I need yeah. both. Before I thought I just needed fellowship. I need both. And the promises for me are the biggest expression of life on life's terms because they come and go as uh, as they please. And if I can live with them coming and going as they please, I can live life on life's terms. Mm-hmm. But underneath all of that are a suite of promises and the cash and prizes that are the, the, the tangible stuff and the intangible stuff, which is infinitely more valuable coming true. Mm-hmm. But I think it's probably happened more so in the last year than ever, using the program in a meaningful way and knowing that I'm doing it has been remarkable because I'm not doing it alone. I'm not alone. I still suffer from crippling loneliness, but the truth is I am not alone. The fellows in my life, two particular ones, my sponsor, my family and friends, you know, I know that now. I know to my core that's true. Yeah, it's such an astonishing realization when you come to that. You look around you and say, wow, my life really has changed. And you're able to put a name to why all that happened. And that to me is God or higher power or whatever we want to call it. Yeah. That's that's beautiful. Well, we're going to wrap up here. I wanted to ask you one more thing, and that's this. Just to use your imagination for a minute, let's say that you could go back in your life with all the knowledge that you have now as a recovering alcoholic with eight plus years sober. If you could go back to a, another point in your life, any time in your life with the knowledge you have today, which Radha would you have gone back to and what would you say to her? Such a good question. Um, I would, I, I've, I, I think I, I've answered this question in therapy a lot through letters <laughs> to that person, but maybe that's where I learned it. <laughs> yeah, I would go back to the rider that stopped drinking alone and said, "Don't do this on your own. Go yeah. to AA." And I would go back to that little girl yeah. and would say, "Please ask yeah. for help." That's beautiful. woman I interviewed the other day said that she would go back and give that little girl a cuddle. Mm. I just thought that that was so, so neat. Yeah. Well, you know, this has just been a marvelous discussion. I, I so appreciate getting to know you. Uh, you and I could probably go to meetings for years and learn about each other's lives, maybe <laughs> five minutes at a time. But for sure. this is just a wonderful opportunity. You're, you're a really interesting and marvelous woman, and you've managed to overcome a lot to make it to eight years of sobriety. I honor your sobriety. I always like to say that staying in the middle of the program is the only place to be because you never know which of the things that you're doing on a daily basis, that if that got eliminated for a short or a long time, you'd be back out there. So I'm, I'm glad to hear your, your involvement in the program is so strong. Thank you. 
Thank you for the privilege of um, being heard. I appreciate well, it. Well, as I tell all my guests, I love you, and I, I love the fact that we're able to talk like this hundreds of miles away, and I wish you much success in Manhattan. And th- thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Well, that's a wrap for today's episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, Rada B., for sharing her story, and thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you please tell others how to listen to it? And please take a minute to give it a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That will help others find it. Of course, you can listen to many more interviews in this series by following this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, and other podcast providers. Or tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to hear every show, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs and no one receives financial gain from this show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA, that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.